All right, welcome to church today. My name is Austin. I'm a part of the team here at Waypoint. Um, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Um, real quick, if you are in fourth or fifth grade and you're still in this room, I just want you to know that we've got some fourth and fifth graders meeting upstairs in the flat. So if you want to go check that out, go hang out with some, with some students your age, you are more than welcome to. They're meeting right now. So you just saw, maybe you saw some kids leaving the room. Um, so if you're in fourth or fifth grade still and you want to go up and check that out, by all means, this is your invitation. Go. What are you waiting for? All right, okay, just make sure. Just making sure. Maybe they're all up there and I just talked to a bunch of adults. If you want to go, it's probably going to be better than this. I mean, that's pretty awesome up there. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll dive in. Uh, this is our second week in this series uh, called 30 Pieces of Silver. Um, and we started the conversation last week talking about Judas, the betrayer, right? Whose unmet expectations led him to trade Jesus for... 30 pieces of silver. And that is the main idea behind this series, is for us to consider the ways and the things that we are tempted to trade for Jesus when we find ourselves navigating and dealing with unmet expectations. Because if we're honest, truly honest with ourselves, we all have expectations and we carry them everywhere into every facet of life. And so like this, so, so learning how to navigate them is, is incredibly important. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do through this series, is invite Jesus into our unmet expectations so that Jesus can then set the reality moving forward for us and we can begin to treasure him despite all other idols or things that we'd be willing to trade him for or tempted to trade him for. Okay, so speaking of expectations. How many of you in the room are married? Show of hands. Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up with your hands still in the air. I'm going to ask another question. Yep, keep them up. We should be like, I'm married. Like, come on. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, and you know what? If you're single, that's awesome too. Like, there's, there's a lot about singleness that I don't think gets appreciated in the scriptures. Okay, yeah, I heard some woo-woos. Okay, let's be honest about that. Okay, so keep your hands up. I know your arms are pretty tired by now. You're like, Austin, just get to the point. Okay, here we go. Is your, here's the question. Is your marriage what you thought it was going to be before you got married? Okay. Maybe some hands are still in the air. Okay. All right. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some hands still stayed up. Um, you guys must have had some, like, incredible premarital counseling, or you just did premarital counseling, okay? Um, but, so I guess, I guess uh, Morgan and I, um, I guess what I'm getting to is Morgan and I are coming up on eight years of marriage, and I can honestly say, I can honestly say that, I, don't, I just, I don't want to get up here and never be, um, like, honest or transparent with you guys, because I do feel like that's a disservice to you as I'm in community with you, as Morgan and I are in community with you, and you guys are a part of our, of our, of our life. And so, yeah, I can honestly say that marriage is not, um, not what I thought it would be. And Morgan is not the wife I thought she would be. Now, let me be clear. Morgan, and okay, I'm glad she's not in here, because <laughs> she'd be turning super red. <laughs> Morgan is amazing. <laughs> she's incredible. If you know her, you know that. Like, by far, the better half, the better, like, 
of us, okay? So like that, that is, let me be clear, okay? In our marriage, our marriage is something that I cherish very deeply. But it would be a lie for me to say that it's, it's all what I thought it was going to be. Because in marriage, in, in most marriages, you make a confession. The day that you say, I do, is the day that you have confessed before God and man about entering into a covenantal relationship. That day I said, I do, I confessed before God and man that I was entering into a covenantal relationship with Morgan, with my wife. When I said yes to Morgan, I was saying no to every other woman. In that moment, I was saying that I actually give my life to you. I will no longer live for myself, but for you as well. And so my confession to Morgan that day was true, and it was right. However, my understanding of that confession is not always right. Because even though I confessed myself to Morgan, I still, I still tried to make Morgan more like myself. I still tried to manipulate Morgan to satisfy my own needs. I still tried to eradicate or ignore things that I didn't like about her that were crucial to who she is as a human being. But I had expectations, right? I had expectations of what marriage is and what a wife is, and I wasn't experiencing those expectations because my understanding of my confession to Morgan the day we got married was not complete the day that I made that confession. In other words, I didn't know what I didn't know. When I made that confession, I didn't expect you and this marriage, Morgan and this marriage, or I did expect, I expected Morgan and this marriage to make me happy, to give me what I always wanted, right? When we go through like premarital counseling with other couples now and we talk about some of the things they're looking to get out of marriage, like that's one of the first things we kind of navigate expectations, happiness. And so I came in, I was told in our premarital that I like, I tend to see, especially marriage and Morgan through rose colored glasses. Like that was one of the things, one of the first things I heard and I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> and then sure enough, like here I am. And I had, this expect, I had this expectation for that to make me happy, to give me all that I always wanted. And my point here is that we can go into marriage confessing the right thing but expecting the wrong things. We can have all the right beliefs and all the wrong practices. We can confess with our lips that my spouse is the most important person in my life and then to honor and cherish them for better or for worse, yet we can live detached from that in a way that does not communicate the truth of that covenant because of our own self-centered expectations. Where am I going? If we, if we can do this to each other, who we see, who we love and live with, how much more can we do this to our Jesus? How much more self-centered can we be? 
How much more is our devotion to him defined by whether or not he lives up to our expectations of him? Today we're diving into a moment in the Gospel of Matthew where there is first a confession made. And then moments later, an unmet expectation. Followed by an important reality for every follower of Jesus. So I just wanted to lay out that picture with marriage because marriage truly is. All relationships, in fact, all relationships truly are a picture of what our experience is like and how challenging and rewarding a relationship with Jesus is like. All relationships. Whether you're married or not, friendships, all relationships. One of the greatest pictures of our relationship with Jesus. So that's kind of where we're heading today. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to dive on in. We're going to dive on into Matthew. Um, so if you've got your Bibles or if you've got the app, I invite you uh, to open them up and join me in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And I'll have it up on the screen, of course. When Jesus came to the region, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Timeless question, honestly. People today are still trying to define who Jesus is. Cultures, society are still trying to answer this question today. So his disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, <clears throat> others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus, Jesus replies, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Regardless, regardless of who the world says Jesus is, who culture says Jesus is, who people say Jesus is, Jesus asks this question of every single one of us. Who do you say that I am? And I think it's important for us today in the 20th century, to add this. Jesus is not asking, who do you feel I am based on your circumstances today? The same reason so many marriages fail is the same reason, reason that Christians struggle following Jesus because we live in a culture that, is taught, that has taught us that our feelings define reality. And, and while the way we feel is very real, in the sense that we feel them, our feelings are real. They aren't always accurate or true. And so Jesus is, is asking us this question so that we don't base our response to Jesus on how we feel to be true, but rather what we believe to be true. Simon Peter, verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, 
blessed. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, this very confession of who Peter said Jesus is, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And AKA the people who confess that Jesus is Lord, not even death will overcome. Death does not get the last word. It has no power in the light and life of what we have when we confess Jesus is Lord. The most powerful thing we know, death itself has no power over people who confess Jesus. He goes on to say, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is Hebrew language, for in other words, the church does not get man's will done in heaven, but rather it obeys God's word on earth. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that point on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. When Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, there's significance to that because Jesus knew what the response would be after verse 21. And Peter's response gives a great picture of of the fact that the disciples didn't understand or that they had the same expectation of the rest of the Jews. So here's what Peter says in that moment. Peter took him aside. Like, yo, Jesus, come, come here for a second. Like, listen up. Peter began to rebuke him. And he says, never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. Why are you saying this? This is crazy. First of all, this would have been very disrespectful for a disciple to correct their master or rabbi, let alone rebuke them. But I'll ask us the question for today, is what Peter is is doing bad? No, it's, it's kind of noble, right? He's just trying to protect Jesus. It's honorable. But underneath that statement is an idea, an expectation that Peter has for his Messiah. To Peter, for Jesus to suffer and die isn't even close to the picture picture that he has of what the Messiah is. This expectation is far from alignment with the way of Jesus. And so, Jesus turned And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, if there was like a list of top five things you do not want Jesus to say to you, that is at the very top. Okay? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, my man Peter has gone from rock to stumbling block in a matter of minutes. Why? What happened? 
He's literally blessed in one moment and called Satan the other. What happened in that moment? Why was Peter a stumbling block? What was he a stumbling block for? Where was Jesus heading after that moment, after the confession? Where did Jesus start heading towards? He started making his his move towards Jerusalem. What would happen in Jerusalem? The cross. The cross. What was, Peter, what was Peter in the way of? The cross. This is why Jesus' response to Peter is so serious, because Satan proposed the very same idea. You don't need to die for glory. Peter, like most of his fellow Jews, resisted the idea that the Messiah must suffer and die. Peter's expectation of how the kingdom of heaven would come and what it would look like was based on what we're told his humanly concerns. Despite Peter's confession, because his confession, Jesus, you are Messiah, you are Lord, you are the answer to what our people has been praying for and yearning for for 400 years, for thousands of years, Jesus, that is you since the beginning of time. Since the garden, you are the answer. I think sometimes we don't even have like a concept for what this response in that moment would be. Because it's so like far removed from our own culture. This idea of a king, of a lord, of a messiah. But this is a huge deal. And so despite... Peter's confession being right and true. He didn't fully understand what his confession meant. He didn't know what he didn't know. Or he wasn't listening, because Jesus (laughs) alluded to this quite often. And so Jesus rebukes him, and he goes on to tell them, He goes on to tell them, all of the disciples, because Jesus knew that all of the disciples had the same issue with what he just said. And so he goes on, he turns to tell them the true and right meaning of their confession. In verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So Jesus says, listen, Peter and friends, not only am I going to the cross to die, but anyone who follows after me will too. Following me is not going to be comfortable and it will surely mean death. Diedrich Bonhoeffer puts it like this. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ, suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins 
The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. In other words, our relationship with Jesus begins with confession and heads towards the cross. When Christ calls a man, and this is a famous quote by him, maybe you've heard it before, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die, to die with all of our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die, and therefore Jesus Christ and his call are necessary to our, our death and our life. We do not want to die. I'm glad that, that Diedrich mentioned that, Mr. Bonhoeffer, because reality, the truth is, we all want to live a happily ever after fairy tale life. Yet sadly, we know that that is exactly that, a fairy tale. We've all got stories in this room. We've all got history. We know that life isn't a fairy tale. And anyone telling you that Jesus promises that kind of life isn't preaching the gospel because the gospel is the gospel because of the fact that life is not a fairy tale. And so there is a real temptation to believe that Jesus is a genie who wants to grant you all your wishes and give you happiness in life. And so then when we come to Jesus with that expectation, eventually we're left horribly disappointed because Jesus isn't as much concerned about your happiness as much as he's concerned about your holiness, friends. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, once said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, he says, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. In the scriptures, this, this moment or this story when Jesus talks about this, this cross moment to bear your cross, it's often referred to as the cost of discipleship. One of my favorite theologians and philosophers, N.T. Wright, says to follow Jesus, to follow him, means to give everything and gain everything. I know that few of us would argue that being comfortable is not enjoyable, because we all want to be comfortable. Whether it's from the clothes we wear, right, or even more literally the furniture that we have at home, or food, comfort food, right, there's a reason we call it that. There is a market in our culture for comfort. Sometimes, however, the most comfortable things 
are not the best things for the situation. I, I read this. this is, I thought this was a really good analogy. Consider the work boots of a person who spends all day on their feet doing labor-intensive work outdoors or indoors. If you're a hiker, this will make sense for you too. A slipper, though it's really comfy and it feels good and it's cozy for just lounging around the house, is not the right shoe for the job, right? A lot of places around here would not let you work, walk into work with a slipper on. This kind of person needs a sturdy, supportive, protective boot. And straight out of the box, this shoe might feel uncomfortable. It might be tight, it might feel heavy, the leather is rigid, the soles feel hard and robust, but there's a break-in period where the boot, or perhaps our feet, conforms, and the footwear becomes more and more comfortable to wear. Friends, a faith that is comfortable right out of the box is not likely to hold up to wear and tear. If we are maturing in Christ, we will experience, it. We will experience our own break-in process, one that is lifelong and at times uncomfortable, sometimes very. But a part of that process is so that we conform and transform into a clearer image of Christ, a clearer reflection of God. On the other hand, so I think this is important to say too, there is a difference between being uncomfortable because God is, is growing or refining you and being uncomfortable because of the actions of someone else or, the, or unfortunate circumstances. Not all discomfort is about you and God. There is a difference between discomfort and fear and pain. There will be challenging times as we walk with God. We can recognize that and understand that. We're told that. We know that many people have shared in the sufferings of Christ, even in their martyrdom. Today, this is still happening today. But be careful to not fall into the warped thinking that if you aren't miserable, you aren't following God closely enough. That if you aren't, that if you are miserable, it's because you are more holy, perhaps. That's not true. And even more than that, abuse is not holy. And you do not need to remain in a toxic situation in the name of being refined. God does not condemn his people to a life devoid of happiness or joy. That's not true. The reality is we live in the tension of the uncomfortable growth as disciples, the cross, and what that looks like and what that means, and the wholehearted goodness of living in God's love. We know the joy of the cross and the resurrection, two very different expressions of God's goodness that we are meant to experience. I want us all to, I, I have another, another piece of scripture that I, I just want to kind of um, welcome into this moment, together, as a community. So if you, if you guys would, if you would just bow your heads, take some time. I'm going to read some scripture, and I just ask that you would invite the Holy Spirit into this moment for you. And, uh, and yeah, 
Let God move. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also boast in the glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Jesus, in this moment, we lift you up and we praise you, God. God, when following you gets uncomfortable, I pray that we fight the temptation to hand you over for something that isn't you, for something more comfortable in the moment. When we're tempted to trade long-term happiness for short-term pleasure, God, I pray we fight against that. I pray we fight when we're tempted to trade love for a fleeting sexual encounter. God, I pray that when we're tempted to sacrifice the intimacy and trust of a marriage for the matchstick thrill of an affair, God, I pray that we fight against that and we fight for when we're tempted to trade contentment with what we have for the feeling of buying something shiny and new, when we're tempted to trade our comfort in the moment for your presence, God, may we choose you. May we choose your way. Despite how uncomfortable it may seem or feel, may your presence bring us peace that transcends our expectations and our understanding. Jesus, we confess that you are Lord. Now God, make right our understanding of that confession. Lead us and guide us into not what we have in mind, but God, what you have in mind. We ask these things humbly. In your name, Jesus, we love you and we praise you this morning, God. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to join our artists for worship and sing one last song, and I just lean in, lean in. I know that um, when we're talking about things like expectations, that it can be difficult. It can be challenging. But I invite you to bring that to God. Let him show you who he is and what he's done. And may he guide and lead you in that. Amen.